I first met Paul my first semester in college, so just a little over 20 years ago. That would have been fall of 1998. This is Father Matthew Fish. He's a priest in the Archdiocese of Washington. He met Paul Coakley at Franciscan University of Steubenville in Ohio. I met Paul there, but I wasn't like friends with him. He just seemed like this really cool guy who everybody admired. Father Fish admired him too. He was this guy from California who was this great athlete who did rock climbing and triathlons and hiking and right away became known for um, a bunch of just crazy stuff where he was he was camping on school nights in the, in the woods outside the campus and friends with a lot of different people and doing different um, stunts and pranks, all good natured, of course, and just had this, this wonderful, positive, contagious attitude. We went through college together, and um, there are just so many experiences I could talk to you for hours about um, them. But he was a real leader that, that brought people together. He was very good at um, listening to people and helping them when they were in difficult situations and just became, became friends with a lot of different people. There's something about Paul that people, tons of people, were just drawn to. This is Kevin McConnell. He also met Paul at Franciscan in 1998. And at first, it's his personality. It was just as he just had such a good heart and he was funny. And it was so funny. It's this really like fit guy. And but he had like this almost childish like giggle. It was hard not to be joyful around him. I mean, he was so adventurous. Like Paul would and he and I were not similar in this. But if he saw something to climb, he'd climb it. So it could be a tree. It could be a building. It could be just. He had so much energy, and he was, so, he was just so adventurous. Franciscan University has these small groups for students called households. They're kind of like fraternities and sororities, except they're not. The idea is to form a brotherhood or a sisterhood rooted in faith. You've probably heard Steubenville grads like me talking on and on about them. Anyway, Father Matthew and Kevin and Paul all joined the same household at Franciscan, the Brothers of the Eternal Song. Paul graduated in 2002. After graduation, the guys stayed in touch through group texts and the occasional trip. In 2007, Paul met Anne while working at a camp in California. For me, it was love at first sight. <laughs> Paul, it took about a week. <laughs> His dad actually <laughs> kind of set us up. He was like, you and our Paul would be perfect for each other, but Paul won't be get ready to get married for 10 years at least because he just was such a, a little boy <laughs> and loved having adventures. And so nobody thought he was ready to get married and I proved them all wrong. Paul and I were married a year and one week after the day that we met. Paul took a job as a truck driver to pay off school loans. After two years on the road, Paul quit and then took a job as a director of a Catholic camp in the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin. Paul and Anne's family grew. In 2014, the family decided to move to Tennessee. Anne's grandparents had an old farmhouse there, and Anne's family said the couple could renovate it. It was like this 100-year-old farmhouse that was falling apart, and we could use that to, to live in and be able to you know, try and do the home study, having a larger home and everything. And so Paul and my brothers were working on the house and rebuilding the house for us. And it was during that time, um, two days before Christmas of 2014, Paul went into the walk-in clinic. Paul had a bad cough. Anne's mom and brother had bronchitis at the time. So everyone assumed that's what Paul had too. But then he started coughing up blood. They thought maybe he had pneumonia. The doctors took x-rays of his lungs, and there were 
they said it was innumerable numbers of tumors, that his lungs were more filled with tumors than not. Paul had surgery the day after Christmas that year. Doctors discovered he had testicular cancer that had metastasized to his lungs. A week later, they learned the cancer had metastasized to his brain. As soon as it was public, we were told right away, and we always have the text strand between all the brothers, we call them the brothers, so we all knew right away. We were praying for a miracle right away. Father Fish was in Rome when he got a call from one of his household brothers. We were, you know, just total shock. We had we had a one one household brother who had gone through brain cancer and got through it and and remission and everything. So um, we kind of knew a little bit what that was like, but still um, shocking news. But right away committed to praying for for Paul and you know reaching out to him. My husband was the strongest person I ever knew, and nobody nobody ever kept him down for long. He was very active, and so I don't think any of us really realized how bad he was. One night after the surgery, Paul was in tears because of the pain. He had already taken his pain medication, and Anne wasn't sure what else she could do for him. She remembers feeling helpless. And we took out a little notebook that we had started writing down. People had already been messaging us with prayer intentions, saying, hey, you know, my brother is away from the church. My daughter needs heart surgery. And people were asking us to, to pray, and so, we went through and just through his tears, he was saying, you know, dear Jesus, I'm suffering for you. And he was listing the names of the people that were asking for prayers. Um, and so the fact that he was able to see the beauty of his suffering, even through his pain and being able to offer it for other people, I think there was just so much grace that was received from that. That night, Paul had a stroke. And he kept saying that he thought that maybe he had pinched a nerve. And just from looking at him, I assumed that he had had a stroke. And I called a friend who was an emergency room nurse, and I talked to her. Um, and she said, yeah, get get him to the hospital as soon as possible. But I'm, you know, I have all these babies. And so I'm trying to gather up diapers and clothes so that we can drop the kids off with my sister-in-law and run up to the emergency room. And Paul's just as nonchalant as ever, and he's just trying to eat his morning bowl of cereal, and he can't get his spoon to his mouth, and he's laughing because he thinks it's funny that he keeps spilling milk all down his chin, and I'm like, it's not funny. This isn't funny. But the kids, you know, he was just so joyful there with the kids and just, you know, just like any other, you know, like, oh, yeah, this just happens, you know. And um, so I think it really kept things positive for the kids. Anne took Paul to the hospital. Even still, his health started declining really fast. Paul's friends started a social media campaign under the hashtag PrayForPaul. The Facebook page gained thousands of followers. Yeah, somebody had created a Facebook page, and I didn't know anything about it at the time. And then my sister-in-law showed it to me, and I could not believe all the prayers that were coming in from all over the world. You really see the church alive when you see people united in prayer, people that may not even know each other, but just through Christ we are united in praying and offering for each other. If there's one thing Paul did, even just those three or four weeks, is he brought so many people to the faith. I mean, I had people call me literally in the middle of the night that I had no idea was following Paul's story. 
and they weren't people of faith. And they're like, hey, I'm just letting you know, I've been following this online and um, I'm gonna go to church on Sunday. They are so touched and so impacted by the way Paul and Anne were, were living this part of their lives. You know, every couple of days, Annie would, would write about, you know, how they, uh, how they were doing and how they were praying and the, the news from the doctors. And as the, as the um, news got worse, their, their witness of hopefulness of trust in God just became that much more extraordinary. I mean, we've prayed that it would be a test. I mean, I remember us talking to me like, well, maybe it'd still be like Abraham and Isaac. Maybe he's just going to say, how much do you love me? How much do you trust me? And then he'll take away this cross. And that wasn't what he was calling us to. He called us to carry this cross all the way. But at the same time, you know, even after I lost Paul, I knew that God was doing so much with his life. Paul died on January 20th, 2015 less than four weeks after his initial diagnosis. Paul was 34 years old. Anne remembers that everyone cleared out of Paul's hospital room. They left her alone with her husband's body. And she told God that that could be the time for a big miracle. She remembers saying that he could bring Paul back right then and there. Then Anne says she started laughing because she knew Paul was with Jesus. I felt peace. I felt miserable for myself that I had to be alone without him, but I was really joyful for him. And, you know, there were definitely days after that where, you know, I felt like I couldn't breathe being without him and knowing that I would have to go through a long life without him. But at the same time, never for a moment did I question God's will or feel like abandoned by God or anything like that. I I wanted to understand more of why, but I was accepting and at peace with the fact that God had done something and that he was using Paul's life at his death for a reason. Paul died on Anne's dad's birthday. So when Anne got home that night, her kids were helping to bake a cake to celebrate. I hadn't been home in two weeks. I was in the hospital that entire time. And so that evening after Paul passed away, my parents brought me home. And I remember getting out of the car out in front of the house and saying to my mom, you know, how do I tell them that their daddy's gone? And my mom said, just say a prayer and he'll give you the words. And I walked in the house and the kids were so excited to see me. And I'd never been away from them that long. And they were just jumping all over me. And my little one-year-old daughter climbed up in my arms and I was holding her. And she was the first one. She said, where's daddy? And I took the kids over to the couch and I sat down with them. And I said, you know how we always say that when we do good deeds, we store up treasure in heaven. And I said, daddy does lots of good deeds, doesn't he? And the kids were all, yeah, he, he does lots of good deeds. And I said, who do you think in our family has the most treasure in heaven and they said daddy and I said yeah daddy was so good and had so much treasure in heaven that dear God let him come see all of his treasure in heaven and it was so neat because the kids weren't upset they were excited they were like wow really wow and, you know, and it was hard for me but at the same time it was really beautiful just to see their innocence and their joy of like that's how our attitude should be that we just It is a joyful, beautiful thing that Daddy got to receive, all the treasure that he had stored up in heaven and that he got to be there with Jesus, and the kids were just excited about it. 
know, I've gotten messages about how people's lives have been changed by Paul's story and just the fact that if Paul could bring someone closer to Christ, he would have suffered death for that alone. You know, here on earth, we're so limited. Paul wanted so much to be able to bring people to him, and he always felt like he and his own human frailty couldn't do all the things that he wanted to do. Paul struggled with depression. He had bipolar disorder, and, you know, he felt like that held him back from being able to share the love of God that he wanted to share with people and to evangelize people. And I feel like God has given him that ability in his passing, even more so than he was able to during his lifetime of ministry work. It might seem like thousands of prayers went unanswered when Paul died, but Father Fish says that isn't the case. There was no ambiguity at all or uncertainty about whether those prayers were answered, I think they were they were answered even even in a way that was even greater than we could have expected. That the there was a miracle. The real miracle was that so many people found out about the way that Paul received and experienced this illness and ultimately prepared for his death. I mean, everyone has to die, and um, everyone has to face that reality. And I think Paul gave us a gift that we're all going to have the rest of our lives about how to do that. And the fact that thousands of people were were personally, intimately touched by this and affected by this through social media is incredible. And I, I mean, maybe someone in their life could have that kind of influence. I don't know. But it, it seems providential that this was God's plan. Whenever I get together with my friends, I was just with a couple guys out in Colorado a few weeks ago and we talk about, and we talk about his witness. And we talked about how uh, he loved the Lord and how he left, how he led so many other people to love the Lord. And we always, even if we don't say it exactly this way, I think we, we always, we're always left with that conclusion that we, we want to do the same thing. This week on our podcast, we're talking about what it means to have a good death. You just heard the story of the good death of Paul Coakley. After the break, we'll talk to people who offer a peaceful alternative to assisted suicide. And after that, how 16 martyred nuns may have ended the French Revolution's reign of terror. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and this is CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. My name is Mary Farrow, and I am a reporter with Catholic News Agency, and I'm here with my husband, Kevin. Kevin, why do you like to listen to CNA Newsroom? Well, I listen to CNA Newsroom to make my 45-minute commute shorter and to ease the pain of traffic. It keeps me up to date on everything that's happening in the Catholic world, and when I want to learn more, I can always hit the website later. We also like to listen to CNA Newsroom at home in our apartment. While we're making dinner, we like to tune in. So pop online and hit subscribe. Find CNA Newsroom on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or most anywhere you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. The Shrine of St. Joseph in St. Louis, Missouri, which I just happened to visit for the first time last summer, has many depictions of Jesus' foster father, as you might expect. One of the statues in the church depicts a very specific instance in St. Joseph's life, the very end of it. In the back of church is a wonderful statue 
of the dying Joseph. I called up Jim Bloom, who runs a nonprofit that supports the shrine, to tell me about the miracles there that have been attributed to both St. Joseph's intercession and the intercession of the Spanish Jesuit St. Peter Claver. The story could be a whole podcast in itself, but here's the short version. Back in 1861, there was a factory worker named Ignatius Strecker who suffered a serious chest injury and came to the church, which was not yet a shrine, to venerate a relic of Peter Claver. Strecker experienced a miraculous healing and lived another 20 years. That miracle was one of the two that helped propel Peter Claver to sainthood. And that statue of the dying Joseph sits today probably somewhere close to where Ignatius Strecker would have been able to venerate the relic of Peter Claver. St. Joseph in his final days and a happy death. And uh, I I certainly encourage everyone to pray to St. Joseph for a happy death, That's, that's for sure. We really don't know very much about St. Joseph. After all, he doesn't utter a single word in the Bible. But scripture scholars generally believe that since St. Joseph isn't recorded as being present at Jesus' crucifixion, he likely had, by that point, already died. Thus, St. Joseph is the patron saint of a good death and of departing souls. But you may be wondering, what do we as Catholics mean when we say a good death? Right, that's that's a good question. Um, You know, I've seen them, and maybe you have too. We should be able to talk about people who have experienced a very peaceful death or a good death or a holy death, and St. Joseph undoubtedly did. So we should invoke his help. This is Moira McQueen, Executive Director of the Canadian Catholic Bioethics Institute. I talked to her about hospice care and about what's known as palliative care. Not usually any serious medication. No attempt to cure is the the best definition. Moving beyond attempts to cure to being sure that the person receives comfort care until the person actually dies. I really see it as something that everybody should have when they're dying, assuming they're in a situation of having an illness and so not dying through an accident or anything suddenly. The whole idea of comfort care just seems to me such a human need. If we're talking as Catholics, we're adding in a spiritual element as well as the actual care element, so care of the body and care of the soul. Nearly all Catholics want to make a final reconciliation, both sacramentally and with friends and family, and they want to receive what we call the last sacraments, the the Holy Beaticum, that, that sacrament that strengthens us for death. You may be wondering why we've moved from the U.S. to Canada with this discussion. Well, around the world the last few years, the question of what constitutes a good death has led several countries to consider legalize, and even choose to fund euthanasia and assisted suicide. Canada is one of those countries, having legalized euthanasia and assisted suicide in 2016. In Canada, the two practices are collectively known as medical assistance in dying, or MAID. Alex Schattenberg, the executive director of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, based in Ontario, offered me this distinction of the two practices on an earlier podcast. Euthanasia is when I lethally inject you, whereas assisted suicide is when I give you lethal drugs, but you take them yourself. Some people talk about palliative care as an alternative to euthanasia. 
I don't think that's strictly accurate because I think actually everybody should should have palliative care where possible. So I don't think of it as much as an alternative, but I think palliative care is what we should have. And I don't even think, of course, that euthanasia is right. So I don't think we should be having it at all. The Canadian Senate legalized MAID in June 2016. In the first nine months of 2019, in the province of Ontario alone, nearly 1,300 people have died by assisted suicide, compared with 1,500 the entire year before. People thought was the main reason for opting for euthanasia instead of palliative care or you know, continuing treatment was uh, a fear of suffering. And, and that's a very reasonable fear because nobody wants to suffer. And I think one of the areas that hasn't really been as well explained to the Canadian population as well as it could have been is just how effective uh, pain medication is these days. They're more concerned about loss of control, you know, that idea of directing one's own life and a kind of loss of independence, which actually does happen if you're a patient and dependent on people looking after you. I think when they were introducing uh, euthanasia, a lot of the narratives would be around people suffering and, you know, bad deaths and that kind of approach. And in fact, it doesn't seem to be that that's um, many people's main concern. If someone's received a life-limiting diagnosis and they're no longer being treated with the intent of stopping the progression of the disease, but they're being treated for comfort measures, then they have a palliative diagnosis. Well, we can't change the outcome or the disease trajectory. We can change the lived experience. Janet Grone is executive director of St. Joseph's Hospice in London, Ontario. Most people want to die at home rather than in hospital, um, but sometimes we can't always do have the pain and symptom management relief or there's not always the supports in place to allow that. And I think at hospice, We don't just look at the medical and physical disease management, but we care for people for their psychological, social, spiritual needs. I also spoke with Wendy Boyle, Director of Resident Care at the hospice. As a Catholic healthcare organization, St. Joseph's doesn't participate in assessments for MAID or the act itself. It's usually a choice to have that control over the end of life that they may not want people to witness or to become what they think a a burden. So it is the Catholic mission to care for people at the end of life, not to end their life early, but to care for them uh, with their goals in mind, so person-centered care, so they define what the care means to them, um, and we provide that care, which is valuing life until the very last moment. The Catholic Bishops of Canada, as well as a number of Catholic advocacy groups, have been pushing for a greater emphasis on palliative care for the dying, as opposed to MAID. The greatest misconception is that this is a sad place to work and this is a sad place to be. Um, It's not a sad place to be at all. It's it's a comforting place. It's a place where people can achieve goals and dreams and and conclude uh, their life and their relationships. So it's it's not a happy place, uh, but it is a place where people can become content and and relax and, and have great comfort. 
For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. On a summer night in 1794, 12 Carmelite nuns stood before a guillotine in Paris. They had each been sentenced to death. One by one, they turned to their mother superior. One by one, they asked her permission to die. Each time, she responded the same way, permission granted. When all of her sisters were dead, the superior was made to kneel before the guillotine, and she too was killed. The story of those Carmelites is not well known, but their deaths might have helped bring about the end of the French Revolution's reign of terror. CNA's managing editor, Carl Bunderson, has their story. The city of Compiègne is about an hour's drive north of Paris. In the 1700s, Compiègne was home to a community of Carmelites, including 12 discalced nuns, a few lay sisters, and externs. At least one member of the community was of noble descent. The rest, though, for the most part, came from very humble backgrounds. That's important to note because uh, the French Revolution ostensibly was intended to free the, the peasants. Of course, what it ended up doing was slaughtering many of the peasants, and these religious included. In 1789, the French Revolution broke out. Very famously, the, the monarchy was toppled. Eventually, the King Louis XVI was guillotined. He had his head chopped off along with Marie Antoinette, very famously. And what replaced it was a series of regimes of revolutionary government that grew increasingly radical. This is Matthew Bunsen. He's written about the French Revolution, and he's a senior contributor for EWTN. You had what was supposed to be a liberating movement for the poor, the oppressed, and of course, uh, dictatorship soon followed, oppression soon followed, and one of the great enemies of the French Revolution was the Catholic Church. It was one of the institutions of French life, and as such, it had to be first brought under control, and then the objective of many of the French revolutionaries, especially the most radical of them, was to be destroyed. They were trying to de-Christianize France completely. This is Stephanie Mann. She's an author based in Wichita. She's written books about the English Reformation and the French Revolution. They had just wanted to turn over the world completely in a very radical way. And part of that was getting rid of the church. In France, streets named after saints were given new names. The week was restructured to get rid of Dimanche or Sunday. In 1790, the revolutionary government passed a law known as the Civil Constitution of the Clergy essentially mandating the destruction of monasteries, the houses of religious, and to force the French clergy to have obedience first to the state. French clergy and religious who refused to declare obedience to the state were arrested. Some were tortured or exiled. And then, of course, a very large number of them in the hundreds were executed, and that's where the Sisters of Compiègne come into the scene. Officials of the revolutionary government visited the Carmel of Compiègne to inspect the property and interview each of the nuns. The officials offered the nuns the opportunity to abandon their vows, an offer each nun declined. Meanwhile, the Carmel's prioress, Mother Teresa of St. Augustine, made preparations, renting rooms in several houses throughout the city and gathering secular clothing. 
In September 1792, the government disbanded the Carmel, and the Carmelites were forced to leave the property. At this point, the Carmelites were faced with a choice: they could abandon everything and live as just women in France, or they could continue to try to be what they were, and that was women religious. They chose the latter, living in smaller groups scattered throughout Compiègne. But they still. Met in common prayer, they still tried to maintain that community life. The French government became increasingly radicalized, and it sank into the hands of Robespierre and what was called the Committee for Public Safety, and that、uh, brought France into、uh, what became known as the Reign of Terror. Anyone who would not adhere completely and absolutely to the law of this revolutionary government. Would be arrested, detained, and then put on trial for treason, and that's exactly what happened to these women religious. In July 1794, the government arrested the Carmelites. They were immediately brought to Paris and held at the Conciergerie, where Marie Antoinette was imprisoned before her trial and execution. The transfer to Paris meant really only one thing, and that was that they would be put on trial very quickly and. That death would soon follow because that was invariably the way that the trials, especially in the era of the Reign of Terror under Robespierre, functioned. During their trial, the prosecutor accused the Carmelites of supporting the late King Louis the Sixteenth because of a fleur-de-lis stitched into an altar cloth. He also accused them of hiding arms for counter-revolutionary forces and basically accused them of being enemies of the revolution and religious fanatics. And one of the sisters said, well, "What do you mean, religious fanatics?" And he says, "The fact that you believe what this church teaches and that you're so simple." And she said, "Well, then at least it's clear that you know that I am a Catholic, and therefore I could see that I am dying a good death and dying for my faith." They were convicted of treason and sentenced to death. They were led through the streets in、uh, an open cart. As you were dragged through city streets of Paris, you would be. Mocked, people would throw things at you. For many in the crowd, this was、uh, a fun exercise. This was for them an opportunity to express again their hatred、uh, for the church, the hatred for the traditional institutions of life. And as always,、uh, that crowd had gathered right around the guillotine itself. But the Carmelites, when they came down from the cart, they did not express or display the fear and the terror. Generally, accompanied those who were going to be facing death in just moments. Instead, it sank. There are differing accounts of what the Carmelites sang that day. Some say the Veni Creator Spiritus. Others, Psalm 116. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations! Praise Him, all ye people! For His mercy is confirmed upon us, and the truth of the Lord remains for ever. Praise the Lord. And silence fell. This is something that is attested by everyone who was there. The crowd fell completely silent. The、uh, Mother Superior had a small statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary in her hand, and they would kiss that statue, say that they were prepared to die, and then the Mother Superior would give them her permission, each one of them, her permission to mount the scaffold and be executed. And each of them went up, and with great serenity, and with prayer and song, they placed themselves under the blade, 
and waited for it to fall. That's how they died, one by one, following one another. And the crowd, it is said, dispersed because they had not seen anything like it. They died knowing they were being faithful to Jesus and his church, and they died knowing that they were in a community. And also, I think the fact that they did think of themselves as sacrificing their lives for the sake of the church and for the sanity (laughs) among this revolutionary bloodletting, they did want to offer themselves in this way if they had the opportunity. They weren't looking for it. Well, they they hardly needed to look for an opportunity to suffer this way. But they knew that somehow, because of their faith and because of the grace that God would give, that how they died could help others. Their blood would not only help the church rebuild, but also that it would help at that particular time and that particular place to end such madness and cruelty in France during that revolutionary period. It had an electrifying effect on the Catholics in France as well as uh, the exiles uh, from the country across the rest of Europe. The assumption was by the revolutionary officials that uh, they would be instantly forgotten. In fact, their bodies were taken away and just hurled into a a sand pit in the cemetery at Picpus. It's notable that within um, just a matter of days, Robespierre himself fell from power, was quickly tried and placed himself under the very blade of the guillotine that had executed the 16 Carmelites. So their deaths, in a way, and their prayers, I think, hastened the end of the reign of terror. The execution of the Carmelites of Compiègne has inspired several novels and at least one opera, called The Dialogues of the Carmelites. The opera's composer, Francis Poulon, depicts the Carmelites singing the Salve Regina. It's so dramatic because they can start out with a full chorus and then one by one, as the heads are cut off, the voices are cut off. The Carmelites were proclaimed venerable in 1902. They were beatified in 1906. Their feast day is celebrated July 17th. I don't think we can underestimate the significance of those nuns and the memory that everyone who was at that event took away with them. I think it really was a powerful, transforming moment in the history of the French Revolution. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Carl Bunderson. That's our show, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. Special thanks this week to Ann Fitzgerald, to the friends of Paul Coakley, and to all of our guests. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.